I want to start with a story. I didn't know my daughter was going to be in the room, so I apologize, sweetie, for this story. Um, when Eliza was about, was very young, maybe three, I walked out in the living room one morning, and she was sitting on the couch with a Bible open in her lap, and she was looking down in the pages, and she very slowly and intently, looking at the pages, said, what the heck? And I've always thought that that is a pretty amazing response uh, to certain parts of the scriptures. Um, it's not a very pious response, maybe, but it seems sincere and honest. And Pastor Vermon and Pastor John have done a great job the last several weeks connecting the applications and the principles of these stories from 1 Samuel to our modern lives. And we've talked about loss and grief. We've talked about prayer. We've talked about how God views and deals with abusive spiritual leadership, and it has all been really enriching for me. But I have to admit that when I'm at home by myself reading 1 Samuel, I have the reaction that Eliza had, which is, what the heck? There's such strange stuff going on in the book. So it starts out with a man who has two wives, and he likes one better, and the one that he likes less has lots of kids and torments the ones that doesn't have any kids. And he's kind of clueless, which is a good point of entry for me in the text, but he doesn't stick around long, so it's hard to resonate too long with Elkanah. Then the woman who doesn't have any children goes to the temple and prays, and the priest is so bad that when she prays out loud, he thinks she's drunk and tries to send her away. Uh, but he can, she convinces him that she is praying and that God will hear her prayers. And he does, and then Hannah has a child, but instead of raising that child, she takes it to the temple to be raised by the priests. And it's these priests where she goes every year to take him uh, new clothes to wear that she encounters these terrible priests, Eli's sons, who steal from the uh, sacrifice and who abuse the women who work at the temple. And so Hannah has to go back year after year to see the gross incompetency and abuse that's happening at the temple where she has left her son to be raised. And then this morning, we read about a young boy who hears God speak and thinks it's his mentor, Eli. Eli, who can't hear God speak, even though he's a priest and a prophet for Israel. And so there's lots of really strange things going on in our passages. And I just want to give us all permission like to normalize the feeling that this is strange stuff that's happening, okay? It's okay to read the Bible and think, what the heck is going on? Um, you think it anyway, so you might as well just acknowledge that you think it, is what I'm trying to say. So I want to normalize the feeling of weirdness in these stories. I also want to normalize the fact that probably everybody in the story that we've encountered so far would benefit from a very long season of intense therapy. There's a lot of trauma and things going bad in this story. But I want to do more than just make it okay to ask the questions. I also think that our passage today helps explain why things are so bad at the time of the story of Samuel. And so at the very beginning of our passage in chapter 3, it says that the boy Samuel is attending to the service of the Lord before Eli, and word from the Lord was rare in those days. And so I want to just take a minute to, to describe those days. What time period is it that we're talking about? So it's at least Samuel's childhood, but if this story in chapter 3 is like episode 4 of the book of Samuel, 
The book of Samuel is like season three in an ongoing story that starts way back in Judges. So the book of Judges, the book of Ruth are all happening at roughly the same time. And the activity here at the beginning of 1 Samuel is happening in the, the time of the Judges. If you um, get a chance to go back and thumb through uh, any of the book of Judges, you can get a pretty quick idea of how bad things are in chapter 2, verses 10 to 19. The situation for many generations is that the nation of Israel, uh, you're, you may remember that in the book of Joshua, they get out of um, Egyptian captivity and they finally enter the promised land. They're supposed to go in and live a certain way. But when they go into the land, they're scared because they don't know how to do all of the things that God has asked them to do. And they've been wandering around in the desert for a while, and now they have to plant crops, and they have to raise sheep, and they have to do all kinds of things that they, they, didn't, they don't have any communal history of doing them. It's all new stuff. And God gave them directions in the law. But when they get into the land, they see that all the neighbors have great crops and great flocks, and they ask, how is it that you have great crops and flocks? And they say, well, we sacrifice to these gods, and they make our crops grow, and they make our flocks multiply. And so the Israelites lose their nerve. They lose their confidence in God. And instead of doing it the way he says, they start doing it the way the neighbors are doing it. And that results in worshiping foreign gods. And when they start worshiping the gods of their neighbor, it gives the neighbors power over them. And pretty soon they're oppressed. And the foreign neighbors are taking taxes and they're, you know, oppressing the people. And so idolatry leads to captivity and then when they're in captivity, the people cry out to God and say, save us. And God sends a judge to deliver them. And for a short period, they experience God's deliverance as long as they follow that judge. But then eventually, they stop following the judge. And they go back into idolatry and back into captivity. And then they cry out again. And over and over and over, the cycle goes for hundreds of years. It's a sort of... Israel down the toilet bowl, right, circle of things going from bad at the beginning to really bad at the worst at the very end, which is roughly the time that Samuel enters the picture. And I think that this history is important, but it's also true that the narrator of 1 Samuel and the Holy Spirit want us to see that there's this connection to that bigger story of Judges and especially to the story of Samson. I wish I had time to spend here, so I'm just, this is like a footnote and homework. So go home this week and read Judges 13 to 16, the story of Samson. In the sort of toilet bowl experience of Judges, Samson is the worst. And I know that in our children's Bibles, we sometimes hold him up as, a, as an example of something, big muscles. I don't know exactly what he's an example of in a good way. But he's the worst of the Judges because he knows what he's supposed to do and he refuses to do it. So God sets him aside for a purpose, and he, he despises the calling of God. And there's, a, there's several little details in the story of uh, Samuel that are very similar to details in the story of Samson. So both of them, uh, their mothers, have, uh, have trouble conceiving a child. Both of them have barren mothers. Both of them, the mothers, get a Nazarite vow to say they're not, not going to cut their hair for as long as they live. Um, and then Samson despises the word of the Lord, and in Samuel, it's Eli's sons who despise the word of the Lord, but the details are there, right? So the narrator of 1 Samuel and the Holy Spirit want us to be thinking about Samuel in the back of our brain, when we're, or Samson, when we're reading about Samuel. And the way the book of Judges described what was wrong at the time is there was this refrain that comes up every few chapters 
that says there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So the problem in Israel is that there's no leadership and because there's no leadership, people are just making it up as they go. And when people make it up as they go without any sort of standard, we do things that may temporarily help ourselves injure others and then ultimately kind of lead us all into a bad spot. That's kind of where we are when we get to the book of 1 Samuel. And then chapter 3, verse 1, our story here gives us another explanation for why things are so bad. Why is it that people are doing what is right in their own eyes? And chapter 3, verse 1 says that the word from the Lord was rare in those days, and visions were infrequent. So God is not speaking, and the people are doing whatever they want. And that's why we can read the first few chapters of 1 Samuel and think, why are these horrible things happening to these characters? Why are things so bad? And that's why it's so bad. The people are doing what is right to them, including the leadership, and God is being quiet. The Proverbs 29 says that where there is no vision, better words, probably revelation, the people show no restraint. They just do whatever they want. And this is sort of the situation in the period of 1 Samuel. God has spoken through his law, so they do have the law, but they had, they're supposed to have leaders who would help the people apply and interpret it for their lives. And instead, those people are blind and deaf, and they can't, they don't, they can't hear from God, and they can't explain his word to the people. I love the detail in, chapter, in verse 2 of our passage, where it says in verse 1, visions were infrequent, and in the very next verse it says, that um, Eli was lying down because his eyesight was bad and he couldn't see very well. There's a connection between his physical blindness and his spiritual blindness. There are no, there's no word from the Lord and Eli couldn't hear it anyway. And there's no vision from the Lord, but Eli couldn't see it anyway. So this is the situation that Israel's in. They have unfaithful, blind, God in the last chapter calls Eli's sons worthless leaders, and it feels like God has gone silent. I can't relate to most of the characters in this story so far. I don't know what it's like to, have, uh, to be a woman who can't conceive children. I don't know what it's like to be a priest who has such worthless sons that you just kind of hope something bad happens to them so you don't have to deal with it anymore. I, I don't know how to engage this story sometimes through the characters, but this feeling that God is quiet or silent is a feeling that I have resonated with very deeply as we've been working through these stories. I think a lot of us could probably relate for multiple reasons to the feeling that I'm praying, I'm seeking God, but it's like my prayers are going up and hitting the ceiling and coming down, and that there's just nothing, God is quiet, he's not out there. We've covered in this series some reasons for that. I think some people, for some people it's personal hurt, like Hannah in the beginning. Some desire that is righteous and good and just that we have prayed for, and it just feels like God is not speaking back. Or some grief or some loss that we mourn, and it feels like God is not speaking back in comfort. I think for some of us, maybe spiritual abuse in the past makes it hard for us to think that God is speaking because we've been told by people who say they're speaking for God, we've been told really terrible things, and so now we like the idea that God might speak, but we can't trust that what we're hearing is God's word because we've, we've been hearing such toxic things from people who claim to speak for God. 
And I think in general these days, there's just so much noise. There are so many people who are happy to tell you what God thinks and what God believes and why those people who say this thing about what God thinks is wrong and those people over there who think, you know what I'm saying? You know, you've been on social media in the last 24 hours, right? There's lots of people who want to speak for God, and it seems like in the jet engine noise of all of that, we're listening for a quiet voice that we just can't quite hear. And I think that in those days, that was the real problem. There is no vision, there are no words from the Lord, and the people are suffering. And these days, I think we can feel something very similar. But the good news in our story, sorry, I have a col the collar is like a problem back here. The good news is that everything changes in verse 4. There is no, there's very rarely a word from the Lord, there's very rarely a vision, but then God called Samuel. So the shift in our story happens when God speaks. This happens a lot in the Bible where something bad has happened, but then God initiates a rescue. So the people are in slavery, and then God remembers. Or somebody prays, and then God hears. Or in this case, everything's quiet, and then God speaks. And once God starts to speak, good things start to happen. And it happens here in a part of the story, I think, where every uh, parent in the room can resonate with the next few scenes here, next few minutes of this scene. Eli is laying down in one room, Samuel's laying down in another, God calls Samuel and Samuel pops up and walks into Eli's room and says, here I am, you called me, and Eli says, I did not call you, go back to bed. Samuel goes back to bed, God calls, he gets up, he walks into Eli's room and said, here I am, you called me, and Eli says, my son, I like that, he adds, my son, my dear, beautiful child whom I love, go back to bed, I did not call you. We've, this week, we've done this, Amy and I. I love you, I like you, I want you to go to bed, okay? The third time, Eli, Samuel, here's a word from the Lord, he gets up and he goes to Eli, and uh, this time, we, uh, things change because Eli realizes what's going on. I think there's, what's important to catch in this detail is that the reason God has to repeat himself is because God's anointed spiritual leader Eli is deaf and blind. He can't hear a word and he can't see a vision. And Samuel is willing, but he's inexperienced. So it says that Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. So he's willing, but he doesn't know what he's doing. Eli is blind and deaf and can't receive anything. But God keeps talking. And that's the sort of beautiful thing about God that this somewhat silly story or silly feeling story tells us about the character of God, that God is patient. And four times in this story, he calls out to Samuel. And if you look at verse 10 in our passage, the fourth time, he doesn't just call, but he comes close. Then the Lord came and stood. And he called, as at the other times, and this time he calls Samuel's name twice. Samuel, Samuel. He's getting more intimate, more connected. And I think it's really important to recognize that this is where the story begins to shift because God is no longer silent. God starts speaking. God is coming close. 
And by speaking and coming close, he's showing us what kind of relationship he wants with his people. He doesn't like the arrangement where he speaks and nobody listens. And so he stops speaking. He doesn't like the arrangement where the people do what's right in their own eyes because they can't hear a word from the Lord. What he wants is to be close and to speak and for people to respond. And so whatever else we might learn in this passage about us, how should we react and respond or what's the application, I think the most important lesson in this story is that God is a God who speaks and wants us to hear. He's not hiding his word from us. He's not keeping it um, behind a, a lock. He's not asking us to become experts in some sort of interpretation or other things in order to hear from him. He wants to speak and he wants us to hear. In fact, what I think is beautiful about this is the word Samuel, the name Samuel means God hears. And now here in chapter three, we learn that also God speaks. And it's when he speaks that things begin to change. So this story shows us an important lesson about who God is, is a God who speaks. It also shows us two great human responses when God speaks. One is that Eli, for the first time, I think, in the book of Samuel, does the right thing. He says, he hears that, that he, he realizes finally that God is speaking, and he's, he gives Samuel advice. He says, now go lay down. If he calls again, say this, say, speak, because your servant is listening. I think it's actually kind of a precious moment in this story. This is a mini redemption for Eli. He's done lots of really bad things. He's actually done lots of medium things. His sons have done really bad things, but he's known about it and he's allowed it. And so here, finally, he is able to kind of redeem himself by giving Samuel a tip on how to hear from the Lord. The word is not to him. God is not speaking to Eli, but the word Samuel gets will be for him. And so there's this interesting dynamic here that Samuel doesn't know how to hear from God and Eli has to tell him. But then the message isn't for Samuel, it's for Eli, right? So they need each other in this arrangement in order to hear the word from the Lord. The word that God delivers is not encouraging. So as a first message, I would prefer a different one, maybe. You know, the first time I hear from the Lord. Uh, I would prefer a, you're doing great, Samuel, and you got a bright future. I think things are really looking up. But what he says instead is, uh, I'm going to do all the things that I promised to do to Eli's family, and I'm going to replace them because they're horrible, horrible people. And then Samuel goes back to sleep, right? And the next morning, Eli wakes him up and says, tell me everything God told you, don't leave anything out, and then threatens him. I'm going to do all the horrible things God promised to do to me if you don't tell me what he said, right? And so Samuel does what he's supposed to do. He delivers the word of God from God to Eli. And Eli says something really remarkable. Again, remember that the refrain through Judges, the problem with Israel, is that everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And here in verse, 13, or verse 18 of chapter 3, Eli hears this message from uh, Samuel. You'll hear more about the details of that next week, and you can go back and listen to the sermon from last week to get the details of that message. He's repeating things that we heard last time. Samuel tells him the story, and Eli's response is, he is the Lord, let him do what is right in his own eyes. 
different translations do this differently. It says it may say, do, let him do what seems good to him or something. But the, the Hebrew is the same. Let him do what is right in his eyes. And what Eli is acknowledging is that things go bad when we do things that seem right to us, only to us. Things go good when God does what seems right to him, right? So the only person really with the prerogative to do what seems right to them is God himself. And the rest of us rely on him speaking so that we know what we should do. And so Samuel takes the advice, he delivers the word to the Lord, and then the story changes because God speaks here and he just keeps on speaking. Down at the bottom of the passage in verses 20 and 21, it says, all Israel from Dan even to Beersheba, and that's uh, northern border to southern border, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So we started with the word of the Lord is rare and there are no visions. And then God speaks to Samuel and then God doesn't stop speaking. He keeps speaking to Samuel. And so things are changing. Good change is in place. And it's really important to recognize that this is not just good news for Samuel. Great, you get to talk to God, that's super, but it's not really a gift for him. It's a gift for all the people. They've been perishing because they didn't have a word from the Lord. And now, because Samuel is a good leader who can listen and who can faithfully communicate God's word, the people now have access to God's word and things can change. So that's good for Israel. So we may call this sort of move in the story the change that God is speaking to Samuel, keeps speaking to Samuel, the good news, but there's actually even better news for those of us who are reading this story this many years later. And if you'll indulge me again, a couple of little connections. I like these connections. My brain craves connections, and I just see them all over the place. Sometimes they're not there, but often they are, and this time they are. Right in our passage, verse 19, it says, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew. And it's a very similar phrase. Remember, I think our narrator wants us thinking of Samson. The narrator says a very sim similar kind of thing to, about Samson in Judges chapter 13. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And I think this is an intentional connection that invites us to look back at the very worst of Israel's history. And for everybody who's reading the story of Samuel to say, Go back and remember the worst. Things are getting better. Because Samuel is here, and Samuel is a better Samson. He has the same call. He has the same command. And he's going to do it this time. So the people can have hope that things are looking up. And that's a great hope, but it's not the best hope. The best hope, actually, is a connection from our previous chapter. Chapter 2, verse 26 says... The boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. The only other place in the Bible that this sentence shows up is in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. And it said, it describes Jesus. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and the people. And so if the connection to Samson makes us want to look back to Israel's worst time and see that God is now at work to redeem I think this connection forward invites us to look ahead to the best news yet, which is that someday these things are going to change permanently 
And God's word to us won't be reliant on individual human leaders who either will or won't hear the word of God and either will or won't communicate it faithfully to the people, but that eventually it's going to change so that all of God's people hear God's word right from his mouth, right to their hearts. And that best news ever comes with Jesus. So Samuel was a better Samson. He was a great judge. But Jesus is the perfect judge and the perfect prophet and the perfect priest and the only mediator between God and people. Once Jesus arrives, everything changes. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, in the past, or we could say in those days, like the beginning of our passage, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and at many times and in various, various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. So what that means for us, the very best news for us, is that God has already spoken once and for all in Jesus, his son. He has told us in his son what Jesus is like and what he wants from us. He wants to be close and he wants to speak and he wants to keep speaking. He has told us that God himself comes close to us in Jesus and stands nearby us through his Holy Spirit and keeps speaking his word to us. What that means is that God will always speak to those who trust him, to those who are listening. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we still don't always hear God speak, right? Just because God has spoken in his son and promises to speak to us always doesn't mean that we always hear clearly. But it does mean that he is never silent. And that is a great promise. It means when we look back to the worst of Israel's history, we can trust that it will never get as bad as that again. God doesn't leave his people without testimony. He doesn't stop talking because he started talking and he spoke in Jesus and keeps going. So I think there are a handful of things that would be helpful to keep in mind. What does this mean for us? How do we apply it? Well, I think that what it means is that even when the vision, the word is rare and visions are infrequent, God is speaking, even if we're not hearing him. And I want to say that I think I've heard a message like this and thought that the takeaway is, shame on you, just try harder, right? If God is speaking and you're not hearing, then who's the problem? You guys, right? That's not what I'm saying. So no shame here. This isn't easy. And it makes sense that we don't hear. So what do we do? I think the first thing we need to do is, like Samuel, we need to be prepared to hear from the Lord. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, is the beginning of the process. I think that this is, it sounds easy and it can sound pious, but I think it's actually really hard because I think if you have been through difficult things where you feel like you poured your heart out to God and you did not hear him speak back, it becomes harder to do it again. And it becomes harder to say, all right, this time I'm ready to listen, right? If you've been in a situation where people have claimed to speak for God and it harmed you, it can be very hard to open yourself to the possibility that God wants to speak. I went to a church for a very long time where the pastor would very often preach sermons that were antagonistic, and then he would say, well, you may have a problem with that, but I got this word from God, so if you have a problem with me, you have a problem with God. It's a very effective way of shutting down criticism. Um, until at some point, I realized that's nonsense. You're just a guy with a Bible like me. 
Um, and so I don't know where, why you think that your take on this passage is explicitly and exclusively the word from the Lord. But it was a very hard time. It took a very long time for me to be able to want to hear from the Lord directly and in an intimate way because that assumed power to speak on God's behalf did a lot of harm. So I'm much more comfortable studying the Bible and reading history and talking about theology than like listening for the Lord because I think all this other stuff is out here and is harder to abuse. But once I start listening for God's word, that feels risky. It feels vulnerable. But I think that's where we have to start. I have to start by saying, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Okay, that's fine. So, but then how do you do it? How do we actually hear from God? I think the first answer is the scriptures. God speaks to us in the Bible. In the Old Testament, he gives us stories about people like Samuel to tell us what to expect in a Messiah, what to expect in a Savior. Someone like Samuel, but better, right? Um, who's moving us toward a full and complete relationship with God. And then in the New Testament, we have stories about what Jesus did in the Gospels, and we have stories about what the early church did, filled with the Spirit after he uh, ascended. And in those stories, we see what God wants for his people and for his church. And so we have an opportunity to go and look. If we don't know, we can go and look in the scriptures. It is true, though, that if any five of us look at the same scriptures, we're it's very possible that we will come to different conclusions about what it is that God is saying in that passage, right? Anybody ever had that experience? You're talking about a passage with a friend. I get the, yes, you're talking about a passage with a friend, and they say, you know, I was reading the Bible the other day, and God told me such and such, because I was reading this passage, and you look at that passage and think, that is not what that says. Um, so having the Bible is a gift, but having the Bible alone does not secure us, does not ensure that we hear God speak clearly every time. Fortunately, God gives us another gift, the Holy Spirit. And at the end of John, before Jesus uh, was crucified, he was talking to his, his disciples. In John 14, 26, he says, The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you of all that I said to you. So the Spirit is working in us to help us see what God wants us to see in, in the Bible, right? It's not just the Bible itself. It's the Bible in, in, enlivened and... Um, and brought awake to us by the Holy Spirit. And there's a third gift, I think, that we often forget. And this is, in some ways, the easiest one to access, so we would do well to remember it. I think the third gift God gives us when we're trying to hear a word from the Lord is other people, other Christians. And it is illustrated, it's easy to miss, but it's illustrated in the story. Remember, Samuel couldn't, Eli couldn't hear God speak. And Samuel didn't know how to listen to God. But together, they could receive a word from the Lord. Because Eli could tell Samuel how to do it, and then Samuel could tell Eli what he said. Right? In no case was it an individual experience that God says something to Eli, and then he says, got it, now I'm good. Doesn't speak just to Samuel, about Samuel, and then he's good. It's an experience of the whole community of faith hearing from God, and enacting that word. And I think the same thing happens in our churches and in the global church, 
that we often hear God speak through other people who are right now, right this minute, hearing him better than I am, right? If you think of it this way, this may be a bad example. I don't have a whiteboard. That'd make it easier, so I'll just do weird gestures with my hands. Um, if you think of it this way, I think in the, in, in the Old Testament, prior to the gift of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, God's word came down into like an hourglass and was to one person or one group of people, priests and prophets, who would then communicate it out to the rest of the people. And the problem was not that there's anything wrong with the word. The problem is that that bottleneck in the middle of unfaithful people stopped the word from getting down here, right? What changes now is not that we are suddenly looking for an individual word from God all the time, but that the bottleneck has been removed and God just speaks to all his people all the time, right? It doesn't mean that we don't need each other. It just means that no one person has the secret and everyone else has to go get it from that one person. Does that make sense? But it does mean that sometimes I can't hear God speak because I'm not in the right place. And you can hear God speak because you are in the right place. And in that moment, I need you. And it may be that a month later, you need me. But it doesn't mean that we all need the same hero somewhere to do all the listening and speaking for us. Does that make sense? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in the second, during the Second World War. He was a faithful pastor who opposed uh, the Nazi regime in Germany. He wrote a beautiful book, and I think everybody should read the first half of the book every year. All of it's good, but the first half is kind of spectacular. It's called Life Together. And in that book, he said, he says this about Christian community. He said, God has put his word into the mouth of others in order that it may be communicated to us. When one person is struck by the word, he should speak it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother or a sister, in the mouth of a human. Therefore, the Christian needs other Christians who speak God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged, for by himself he cannot help himself. And I think this is a really beautiful illustration of what we're talking about. That God is speaking, he is not silent. But I can't always hear. And when I can't hear, I need you to speak on God's behalf to me. And when you can't hear, I'll try to speak on God's behalf to you, right? And it requires a lot of trust, and it requires a lot of community. Um, it may be sometimes that that word is a word of rebuke. I think for myself, I grew up in a very homogenous sort of Christian community in a very small town where everybody was about the same inside and out, to be perfectly honest. We made a big deal about the fact that out there they're all sinners and in here they're pretty good, but as far as I could tell, pretty even, you know, inside and out. Um, it, the only way I could see that God's vision for his church and Christian faithfulness was bigger than that little community that I came up in was to encounter Christians from different places who had had different experiences. And so it's what I love about a diverse church like Roosevelt is that there are people in this room who hear things from God that I don't hear. And it's not because God doesn't say them to me. It's because I'm deaf or blind in that particular spot. And I need someone who's hearing from him in that thing. Sometimes I need you to call me to repentance. To say, I see something you don't see and it's not great. And this word from the Lord is an invitation to repent and return. Sometimes it's an encouragement. 
when I'm so deep in my own head that I can't really see past my nose, I need somebody to call me out and to say, God wants you out here with the rest of us, right? And so sometimes the most immediate way we experience God speaking to us is through other people. It's so important to be connected to a church that takes the Bible seriously, that listens for the Holy Spirit, and trusts that God is speaking to all of us here. And I think Roosevelt is just that kind of place. So if you are here and you're feeling like the word is rare and visions are infrequent, if God seems quiet to you, I think you've come to just the right place. It takes a little bit of risk. It takes a little bit of vulnerability. But I hope that you'll join us in listening for God because I do believe that God is here and I know that he is not silent. Amen.